So if you sit in a preaching class or if you learn about public speaking, one of the first things that you learn is intro is so important. They tell you to come out with a phrase, a, a strong word or an illustration that can grab your audience's attention. And I feel like I don't really have to do that today because just the passage itself is so, so provocative almost and it, it grabs our attention. Um, it's something that seems to go against our culture today. It just sounds wrong. It feels wrong. Just reading it, right, it almost feels sinful in a way. But we have to understand that this passage in particular, it's not a tweet that we can read off the internet that can be interpreted in isolation, but we have to look at it in its context first within 1 Timothy, which is a personal letter that Paul wrote to his spiritual son Timothy, who is pastoring a local church in Ephesus in the first century, and also we have to understand it in the wider context of God's word. There's also a challenge because Paul, he's addressing specific issues that exist within the church of Ephesus at that time. And so we have to understand that there are specific things that apply to the church of Ephesus. At the same time, there are things that we can treasure even in the 21st century. So let's try to look at this in its context. So 1 Timothy 2, 8 through 15. Uh, this really comes within the wider context of 1 Timothy, which we said we can find in 1 Timothy 3, 15, where Paul basically says, I desire to go to you, Timothy. Paul is kind of away at this point. He wants to visit Timothy, who is pastoring in Ephesus. But he says, in case I delay, I want you to know that this letter I'm writing to you so that you may know how one ought to behave within the household of God, which is the church of the living God, which is also the pillar of truth. So this is a family letter. This letter contains instructions on how one ought to behave within the household of God in line of the gospel. And in chapter 1, we kind of see that the gospel is important, that it is central to everything that we do. And one of the problems that exists in the church of Ephesus was that there are all these false teachers that were bringing all these false doctrines that were not aligned with the gospel. And so Paul talks about the centrality of the gospel in chapter 1. He says, you have to guard this Timothy. You have to defend this Timothy. You have to fight for the gospel. And after talking about the centrality of the gospel, the application to this is first we must pray for all people. That's what he says beginning in chapter 2. He says, you ought to pray for all people. Why? Because you serve the Lord. One God who is worthy of all worship, who is worthy of the worship of all people, and you have one mediator who is Jesus Christ, who made a sacrifice for all people, who desires to save all people so that they can know the knowledge of truth. And so, although you might not like your leaders, you might not like certain people in society, you ought to pray for all sorts of people. Why? Because you have a mission to reach all people for the glory of God. So he, he says, pray as a church together. And within this context, after explaining why we ought to pray together, Paul begins to give instructions specifically to men and then to women about who we need to be when we pray and worship together. That's where we pick up in verse 8. It says there, this, I desire then that in every place the man should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling, which means disputing. And so the command that's given to men in Ephesus is first, when you gather in worship, 
When it says in every place, most likely he's alluding to the house churches. He's not just talking about every place in general. He's talking about gathering uh, of worship because back in the day, they didn't have nice buildings. They didn't have a central location. They met in each other's homes. They did church together in different places. And so he's saying, in every place that you gather together to pray, to worship together, I want you to remember men to pray with holy hands without anger or without disputing. In other words, the command that's given to the men is this. Before you come to public worship and prayer gatherings, check your heart. Make sure you are without sin. Make sure you are without anger. Why? Because it seems like the men in Ephesus, when they were gathering to pray and to worship, instead of lifting up God, they were busy arguing with one another. It seems like the anger that exists, the tension that exists within them was getting the best of them. And so what Paul is instructing here to the men in Ephesus is this. When you gather together, make sure you are pure before God and you are at peace with one another. And this aligns with other teachings that we see in the New Testament, how before we go to pray, we ought to reconcile with our brother. Um, And so not only... If we walk in sin and worship or in prayer, is that dishonoring to God? But it's also distracting to one another. Like, I, I mean, just think about all those times right before church, something happened within your family. Like, you know, you had an argument with your family member. Or something, maybe, maybe you, you're mad about the discussion that happened with your friend the other day. And you walk into worship with a bitter heart, with, with sin in your heart. And not only are you distracted during worship, but your attitude is contagious to other people. Like it's, this, it's breaking the harmony that exists within the body of Christ. And so to the men of Ephesus, Paul is saying internally, make sure you are right with God. Externally, make sure you are right with others before you come to worship. Because not only is it dishonoring to God, but it's distracting for the body of Christ. So worship is a top priority. Prayer, public prayer is a top priority for Paul. He's simply saying, lay down your personal agendas before you come to public worship. Don't make worship about yourselves. Make worship about God. And then in this context, Paul says in verse 9, likewise, so you kind of see the connection between verse 8 and 9. He's speaking in the same context. Likewise, Jesus has instructed men to act in a certain way in public worship settings and public gatherings for prayer. Likewise, verse 9, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable appeal with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. So this is where things get a little bit tricky, right? Because, okay, we understand that we can have anger issues. We understand that, you know, we can come to worship with unholy hands. But now we're talking about dress codes. Now we're talking about certain hairstyles. Is Paul prohibiting certain hairstyles because they are sinful? It is evil. Is it, is it evil to wear expensive jewelry and, and clothing uh, in public gatherings? Again, I think what Paul is doing is he's making an argument in line of what was spoken in verse 8. F- to the men, he's saying, you know, pray in holiness without anger 
because this is how you ought to conduct yourselves in public gatherings. To women, he's saying that dress with modesty and decency because this is how you ought to conduct yourselves in public worship. The, the concern is public gathering and public worship. Now, these are two separate instructions. However, the heart of these instructions, I believe, is the same. It's the same universal principle that Paul is applying to different genders. And this is the universal principle. If you're taking notes, I encourage you to write this down. A gospel-centered church puts God at the center of their worship. A gospel-centered church puts God at the center of their worship. Not our own desires, not our own wants, not our self-image, not our self-interest. A gospel-centered church puts God at the center of their worship. Just like Paul instructs men, hey, prepare your hearts properly before worship and behave properly in worship, the same is being said to the women. Prepare your hearts properly before worship and behave properly in worship. Now, the application is different, but the heart, the principle is the same, that Paul knows that when we are gathering together as a church, it's all about God, that he is at the center of our worship. And apparently in the church of Ephesus, there were problems where women would, would come decked out um, because they wanted to show off their wealth. They wanted to show off their beauty. They were so concerned about their self-image, how others would see them more than how God would see them. They are more concerned about their good clothing rather than their good character and their good deeds. Rather than being concerned about how, I, how can I love someone else today? How can I honor God in different ways? Rather than thinking about how to build up other people within the church, the main concern was, okay, how can I bring the attention to me? And that's why Paul says in verse 9, adorn yourselves in respectful appeal, but with modesty and self-control. Now, Paul is not saying you should dress old-fashioned or you should dress poor. Like, notice that he says, in respectable appeal. He's not telling you to go and buy something off of the dollar store and, 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 and try to put holes in it so that you would seem to be poor. That's, that's not the whole point. Paul is addressing a heart issue here. What he's saying is this. If you are more concerned about your physical beauty or your self-image more than how you present yourself to God, that's a problem. That's what he's basically saying. You know, I remember having a conversation when I was um, a youth volunteer. I was talking to another youth volunteer who happened to be uh, 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 a girl, and she was a college student, and she was really good at serving the youth. Um, but, you know, she had a particular way that she dressed, and a lot of people had issues with how she dressed. Um, it was mainly the length of her skirt. And we had a conversation about this before. Uh, I know uh, I, I personally had some conversations about this with teenage girls. Um, I know the most common argument is that it's not that the dress is short, my legs are just long, and so, <laughs> right? But one thing is, I think we have to understand that our culture is putting a certain expectation on women. Uh, you might think, no, our culture is freeing women. I remember. Uh, just in case for a retreat, I actually literally went to uh, a store to buy um, shorts just in case uh, at a retreat some of our girls would need shorts. And I, was, I never shopped for girl clothing, and so I was looking around, looking for women's shorts, right? And I was trying to look for things that are a bit longer, 
Right? I'm not even talking about like, you know, covering your knees. I'm, I'm just talking about a little bit on the longer side. That's what I'm all, I'm all saying. And I finally found one, one, and it said, this is for tomboys. Like, literally, it said, tomboy shorts. Like, and if you wear a certain leg, you are considered a, a tomboy. Like, that's, that's the message that is being sent to, uh, by our society to, to women, especially young women. And so, you know, when I was having this conversation with that volunteer, I, I didn't say, like, well, I think this is the appropriate length of your skirt. I simply said this. You know, I think different people have different ideas of modesty and what is good and what is acceptable. Right? Different cultures have, have that. But I think what's really important as we are serving the youth is this. It's the problem of our heart. Like, it's totally okay if you are wearing clothing that you are comfortable with, but when you are dressing, um, you know, if, if whatever you do, if it becomes a hindrance to witnessing to the gospel of Jesus Christ, would you still do it? Like, that's the ultimate goal. Like, we're not trying to tell people, well, this is appropriate skirt length or anything. We're trying to teach people and, and proclaim the good news to, of Jesus to teenagers, right? And if you feel like, you know, like you're coming with that mindset that the best outfit that you can have, this is the best chance that you have to connect with the teenagers and, and to, to share the gospel, go for it. But if you are simply dressing in a certain way because you feel like, I don't care about what other people think, like this is comfortable for me, then maybe we have to check our heart. I remember when I was in Egypt, I was told that showing your elbows is very highly offensive. Highly offensive. You might think that is surprising. Like, and so even for guys, like, not, it, like showing your, your knees was highly offensive. Like people from the Western culture, our, team, our mission team, we were like, we were laughing, right? Like, I mean, and, and, and when we're, we're joking around, showing each other our, our elbows, right? Like, is this offensive to you? But at the same time, I think, you know, every single person decided to put on a shirt, a nice shirt, um, to, to cover our elbows and our knees. Why? It's not because, you know, we're trying to, to we were thinking that's modesty and appropriate. Our ultimate goal when we were in Egypt was to share the gospel. And if my discomfort can open, can el- eliminate certain distractions to share the gospel, why not? Like, if it's not a life and death issue, if it's not a, if me dishonoring God issue, I have to remember my ultimate goal is to do whatever it takes to reach people with the gospel. And the same is true when it comes to the heart issue of what Paul is saying in verse 9 and, and, and 10. What he's saying is this, I want you to be free from the expectations of society. At the same time, I want you to understand that what matters at the end of the day is, is, is me, God. Like, you're, you're, you're worshiping me. You're not living for anyone else. And so the beauty of a Christian woman, God says, it doesn't come from expensive jewelry or nice clothing. He said it comes from a gospel living and a godly life. That's what he says in verse 10, but what is proper for a woman who professes godliness with good works. So a gospel-centered church puts God at the center of their worship. Both men and women ought to properly prepare for worship and also properly behave in worship. Now, how you apply this today in modern society, I think you can apply it in different ways. I think 
the expectation of self-image is not just something that belongs to men. I think I, women, I think men definitely have that hindrance too. I think the issue of anger too is not something that only belongs to men. I think it applies to women. So I think, but the basic principle is this. When we come to public worship, when we gather together, are we preparing our hearts and our lives so that God can be magnified, so that he can receive the fullness of the glory that he deserves? That's the ultimate question. If not, we have to check our hearts. That's kind of the bottom line. Now, everyone on the same page here? Amen? Okay, good, because that was the easy part. (laughs) It says in verse 11, Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Now, again, what Paul is saying here, especially in verse 11 and 12, it sounds not just strong, but wrong. In our culture, it sounds not just outdated, but offensive, especially to to women. Um, But again, I think instead of jumping to conclusions, I think we have to process this passage within its context of 1 Timothy. Remember, these are instructions that are given to the family of God, to the local church. Paul is not just saying that this is how we ought to behave in society. No, he's talking about family matters. So I'll dive a little bit more deeper in on Wednesday. The topic for Wednesday is going to be about what does the Bible say about men and women. So I encourage you to come with questions after the sermon to, to learn more about this topic. I think it's such an important topic right now in our current state, not just for ourselves, but our future generations as well. So I encourage you to come out to that topic. So I'll dive a little bit more deeper in that session. But I want to make it very, very clear. When the Bible talks about the role of men and women, it is not talking about how we ought to behave in society. It's talking about family matters within the household, our personal household, and within the household of God. That means it, the Bible never says all women should submit to all men. It never says that. It also means all men, it, it never says all men should lead all women. That's not the message that is being sent here. When the Bible speaks of submission regarding woman, it's always in the context of the church family and the personal family. Second, even in the context of a personal family or the church family, it doesn't mean that women submit to all men. For example, in Ephesians 5.22, it says, wives, submit to your own husbands, not to all men, but to your own husbands. So wives, you are called to submit to your own husband, not your son, not your father-in-law, not some random person in church. You're called to submit first to your husband. L- ladies, if, if, if your brother especially uh, listens to this sermon and tries to establish dominance over you, like you have every right to rebuke. Uh, uh, if, if, if your guy friend tries to even joke about this, like you have every right to rebuke. Right? Especially if your boyfriend expecting you to submit, oh, you got to run. That's when you know you got to cut ties because that person is not a godly man. Because until you enter into the covenant of marriage, you are not responsible for submitting to your boyfriend. And guys, you are not responsible for leading that lady in a faithful way until you actually make the actual commitment to the other person. No, this is talking about a specific type of submission. Look at verse 11. It says this, 
Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. And in verse 12, it ends with the statement, rather, she is to remain quietly. So in the middle of this sandwich, you know, when it begins with learn quietly, it ends with woman should be remain quiet. In the middle of all this, it says, Paul, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over men. So we're not talking about a woman's role in politics. We're not talking about whether or not women should be allowed to teach mathematics. What we're talking about within the family of God, within the context of the local church, God has a specific design for leadership. And we're going to talk about this um, actually next, next week when we hit 1 Timothy 3 about elders and how these people are called to do a specific task within the local church. Their task is to teach the congregation and to lead the congregation. And so when it says, I do not permit a woman to, to teach a man or to exercise authority over a man, I believe that it's talking about this God-appointed responsibility in the local church called elders or pastors. The primary responsibility to lead a local church falls on a man. That's what it's saying. And so we'll dive a little bit more into this topic, but Again, I want to very clarify um, a couple of things. This does not mean women can't teach at all in public settings. We know from Titus 2.3 that Paul tells older women to disciple and teach younger women. 2 Timothy 3 talks about how Timothy was raised in the faith because his grandmother and mother. So it's important that we raise our children in faith and teach our children about God's word and the gospel. In Acts 18, in a private setting, Pris- Priscilla and Quilla, this faithful couple, takes in Apollos and gives a private Bible study, and this Apollos later becomes the person who's, who, who pastors the, the church of Corinth after Paul leaves. So we see in multiple occasions that women are called to teach. They have the gift of teaching. They are able to equip other people. I believe that making disciples of all nations is something that applies to both men and women. So everyone who is part of the body of Christ, old or young, men or women, are given spiritual gifts, and we are called to use those spiritual gifts for the ministry of Christ. And it's not like an eye is more important than a feet or a hand. No, every member counts important. And so when we say we have different roles, we're not demeaning anyone. But at the end of the day, what Paul is saying is that there is a specific role within the church where someone is ought to proclaim God's word and lead the congregation in a faithful way aligned with God's word. And that role is specifically assigned to men. That's what he, he's saying. And so the second principle that I want, to, I want you to write down is this. I think the second universal principle that we see, the timeless principle that we see in today's text is this. A gospel-centered church embraces God's design and order. A gospel-centered church embraces God's design and his order. Not only do we put God at the center of our worship, a gospel-centered church embraces God's design and order. Now, we can go deep into why God would design things in a certain way, but what the Bible is saying is this. At the end of the day, this is how God designed the church. This is how God designed men and women. Now, some people might say, well, God, he's speaking about a specific issue that exists within a specific church in line of a specific culture that exists in first century Ephesus. This is irrelevant to the 21st century church. Um, Women right now are more educated. They are skilled, capable, independent. Even in society, we are seeing them take more leadership roles. And so if Paul was writing this today, he would have never said this. 
Now, can specific instructions change based on culture? Absolutely. In 1 Corinthians 16, that's why Paul says, greet one another with a holy kiss. Yet, when we greet one another, we don't necessarily give a holy kiss. Like, it's because culturally what God is saying is greet one another friendly in an appropriate way in the body of Christ. Like, there are cultural aspects about the command, but notice Paul's reasoning behind this command. In verse 13 and 14, it says this, the basis of Paul's instruction for women to not take the leadership or teaching, primary teaching role within the local church is this in verse 13 and 14, for Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. So Paul, his argument is not based on culture. His argument is actually based on scripture. And it's not just based on a scripture that's embedded in culture. He's talking about all the way back in creation, according to the order of creation, and according to the fall, the order of the fall, that's his argument. He's not saying, okay, I think men should lead because they're more intelligent, more capable, they're superior. No, he's saying this is how God designed us. He goes all the way back to creation and fall. In Genesis 1, God talks about how men, women are designed, created in an equal manner, dignity, equal value, both beautiful, designed in God's image, in his likeness, so that we can enjoy God to, to, to the full extent, so that we can exalt God as his image barriers. Like men and women both share that beautiful calling to to fill the earth, to fill the earth with God's glory. Yet in Genesis 2, we see that although men and women are equal, men and women are different. They have distinct roles that complement one another. Man alone is not good, not in his own eyes, but in God's eyes. And woman is created to be a suitable helper for the man in a way that God will help Israel throughout history. That word helper is primarily used in the context of God helping Israel in the Old Testament. So what it's saying is the man needs all the help that he can get from the woman. So the two are created equally in God's eyes, in his image, in his likeness, yet they have distinct roles. And together, as they complement one another, they accomplish a couple things. What do they accomplish? Number one, they reflect the image uh, and the nature of God. You know, the one reason why God designed man and woman in such a way is for his glory, so that we can reflect his nature. Now, when we think about submission, the reason why this is such a hard passage is because immediately we think about slavery. Immediately we think about abuse. Because every, every time we talk about submission in our context, in our church, we think about people in power. Those people use their power to abuse the weak. But that's not the case in the Bible. The primary, primary example of willing submission, voluntary submission, is actually Jesus Christ. You think about what, how, the, how the Trinity works, how God exists in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, how they work together in a beautiful way for creation, for salvation. You think about how they operate, although they are equally divine, equally powerful, equally worthy of our worship, equally all-knowing, equally ever-present, but they have distinct roles within the community of the Trinity. The Father sends the Son. The Son says that I do nothing apart from the Father. And then the Son says to his disciples, well, the Father is going to send another helper, 
And that helper is not going to speak of his own authority, but he's going to remind everything that I said to you. In other words, he's going to speak in line of what I say. So you have the father sending the son. The son is willingly obeying and submitting to the plan of the father. Not only that, you have the Holy Spirit who's sent by, by the father, who's going to speak according to the son. So you have this beautiful relationship with the father, son, the Holy Spirit, this loving relationship. Uh, at the same time, this willing submission. The father loves the son. And the son is willingly submitting to the father. And this beautiful picture drives the story of salvation. And the same way God says, man, woman created equally but different. The way that I want this to play out is I want you to be a reflection of who I am. Number two, why is this something that's for God's glory? If you think about the design of marriage in Ephesians 5, God says that the reason why I want one man and one woman to commit to one another in a lifelong commitment to become one is because that is a picture that illustrates the reality of the gospel, Christ and the church. As Christ loved the church, husbands, I want you to love your wife in a sacrificial way. Like, wives, as, as, as the church submits to Christ willingly because of the love, I want you to willingly submit to your husband. And so you have, you have this beautiful picture of the gospel that is illustrated in marriage. And what God is saying is when you embrace these different roles, you're actually declaring the gospel in your personal life. Now, you might say, well, women have the harder part in that equation. Women are called to submit to, to the husband. Um, but husbands, they're not called to simply just dominate. They're called to sacrifice. And so if you think that being the head of the household is a position of dominance, then you are highly mistaken uh, because the reality of the gospel shows that the leadership that is being displayed is not leadership by force, it's leadership by serving and by dying to yourself and sacrificing yourself to love your bride. And so we see that it, this, is, this design is for God's glory, it's also for our good. How do we know that? We know this in the fall. No, what happens in the fall, I don't have time to go into all the different details, but basically what happens is this. Adam was created first. Eve was created to be a suitable helper. Adam was supposed to lead Eve in a godly way, and Eve was supposed to support Adam, and together they're supposed to rule over the earth, have dominance over creation. What happens in the fall? That order of creation gets reversed. A serpent comes along, tells the woman who should have dominance over creation tells the woman, well, do you really believe that God said this? Actually, when you eat of this tree, you'll never die. And instead of telling the serpent, be quiet, well, that's a very PG way, be quiet, be silent, you know, who are you to talk to me? You are not my, on my level. Like, I have dominance over you. Instead of doing that, the woman listens to the serpent. And then all this, the man does nothing. Although he was right there, man does nothing to lead the woman and so what happens is when God shows up, he goes to Adam and says, Adam, what happened? And Adam's like, the woman that you gave me made me do this. And God goes to, to Eve and says, Eve, what happened? Well, the serpent who, who you created did this. And then God talks to the serpent. Do you see what's happening? What was happening is when Adam and Eve were not living out the God-given order, and they were not embracing their God-given responsibilities as men and women and over creation, that's when sin entered into the world. 
And in the same way, I think if we are not careful, if we simply think that God's design and order is just a good idea and something that could be beneficial in different contexts, then we are highly being mistaken. Because God order, his design is for our good. Sin brings disorder to God's work. Satan has distorted God's design for our lives, especially as men and women. And so we see that embracing God's design for men and women is not only good for the Christian family, it's good for the church. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. But lastly, I want to hit on verse 15 because, you know, after going through all of this, okay, so far, hopefully things make sense. But verse 15, yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. What does that mean? I think we know what it doesn't mean. In Ephesians 2, it is very clear that we are saved by grace through faith alone. It's not that if you have a kid, you automatically have a past because you suffered in childbearing. I mean, it would be nice if it works out that way, but because you suffered, you have a past to heaven. No, that's not really the case. Notice that first, it says it's talking to Eve, yet she, Eve, will be saved through childbearing. So one interpretation is that it's pointing back to Genesis 3.15 when there is this first proclamation of the gospel, although man has fallen, um, it says to the serpent, well, although you will bite the heel of, of the offspring of the woman, that offspring of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. So you, there's going to be down the road the, the offspring of the woman who crushes the head of the serpent. And so it's pointing to Jesus Christ. That can be one interpretation. But at the same time, that's kind of a weak position because it says childbearing, not childbirth or, or something else. So I think another position is this. Notice the second part, it says, after childbearing, if they, so all of a sudden, it goes to plural, so it's talking about women. If women continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. So there's something that Paul is addressing about women. Now, we live in a society where we basically say there's no difference between men and women. But one thing that even society cannot deny is this. Men cannot bear children. Amen? Yeah, like literally, men cannot bear children biologically, physically. I know there was like an article back in the day that said uh, a, a transgender man gave birth to a, a child. And you're like, man, that is possible. Just think about it. A transgender man is a woman, right? So you, giving birth to a child is a mystery. Like if science is able to replicate the, the beauty of giving birth to a child, that's when I'll probably say, yeah, science probably is better than God. But as far as we know, childbearing, that is still something that only women can do. And the, out of all the different things, by Paul bringing out childbearing, the only thing that women can do, he's basically saying this, women, understand that you have a God-given responsibility to embrace your role as a woman. Now, I'm not simply saying that, again, childbearing is the way to salvation, but that's a God-given role. And in different ways, if you expand that, there are other God-given roles. And notice that this role is not easy. It requires patience. It requires endurance. But in faith and love and holiness and self-control, if you continue to do these things, it's talking about how you're going to work out your salvation, that you're going to embrace the beauty of salvation within embracing your role. And so what God is giving um, to the woman is actually an encouragement, saying that you might think you're inferior or you're getting the raw end of the deal when I tell you 
there's a specific role for men to fill within the church to teach. But I want to remind you that it's actually good to embrace our God-given design and our God-given roles. So if we are full of the gospel, number one, we will make God the center of our worship. Number two, we will embrace God's design and order. When we don't do that, what we're simply saying is this, I know better than God. And this church, how we ought to relate and exist and act, I know better than God. When reality, God says, this is my church. Upon this rock, I'll build my church. And First Timothy is all about following God's blueprint for a gospel-centered church. So in different ways, I think the Lord is leading us to lay down our pride, to lay down our presuppositions and our understanding of culture. And what he's saying is this. At the end of the day, church is driven by my word. I have a clear design, a clear order. It's not just for my glory, but actually it's for your good. Let's pray.